One of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a story of a young man, Edmond Dantes, who is betrayed by his friends, wrongly accused, and thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he is befriended by a priest, Abbe Faria, who's also wrongly in prison. And during their friendship, Abbe Faria begins to teach him and train him and mentor him. And along the way, helps Edmond Dantes discover what happened to him, how he ended up in prison. Abbe Faria also, in addition to teaching him and training him, tells him about a secret fortune hidden on the Isle of Monte Cristo. Well, in this story, the priest, Abbe Faria, dies... And through his death, Edmund Dantes is set free from prison. He makes his way to the Isle of Monte Cristo, and there he discovers a vast, almost innumerable fortune. And then he spends the rest of the book working out detailed plans and schemes to enact revenge on the people who treated him so poorly. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon this week, I was thinking about, why do I like this story so much? I think part of it is because, to be honest, I'm human, and so we like revenge stories. I mean, we say revenge is sweet. We love watching people, or at least I love watching people get their just deserves. And so here's a story about a, a young hero, Edmond Dantes, who is treated poorly by his friends who are jealous of his success. And then he finds the opportunity and the means through the education and the financial resources. And he slowly takes his time to put everything in place to get sweet revenge on those who treated him so poorly. Now the problem is, as I was thinking about this book in relation to our sermon this week, which is about mercy and forgiveness. So I started feeling guilty for liking The Count of Monte Cristo. So I try to think to myself, okay, well, is there another book where you get the sort of really cool, fun kind of machinations and plots and plans? I mean, Edmond Dantes is almost sort of superhuman as the Count of Monte Cristo, like pulling all of the strings behind the scenes to make it all happen. Is there a story like that, but like about mercy and forgiveness? And so I kind of thought through popular literature, classic literature, and I had a hard time thinking of a story like that. Les Miserables came to mind, and I was like, yeah, not quite. And then it dawned on me, there is a story that's a lot like The Count of Monte Cristo, but about mercy and forgiveness. This, however, is not a piece of literature. It's a true story in our Bibles in the Old Testament, and it's about a man named Joseph. And Joseph is treated a lot like Edmond Dantes in the fact that he is betrayed, but this time by his brothers, who sell him into slavery in Egypt, And there he remains in slavery for many years. But God has not forgotten about Joseph, and God enables Joseph uh, to come into a position of power and of financial resources. And Joseph spends the rest of his story with the same kinds of disguises and machinations and moving around and putting cups in sacks and playing all things together, but for a different purpose. So he can be merciful and forgiving. He goes out of his way to exercise forgiveness and grace to the people who betrayed him, who sold him into slavery. 
And I thought to myself, man, I do actually love the Joseph story for the same sort of reasons. Like it's got all of the plots and all of the machinations that you would want, but the ending is so much more satisfying. The ending of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of mercy, it's so much more beautiful. Well, this morning we're about to look at a passage and Jesus wants to use this passage to move us away from the Count of Monte Cristo towards Joseph. Away from the idea of seeking revenge when we're wronged and towards the beauty and power of mercy and forgiveness. To do this, Jesus tells his own story. So let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and let's look at the story Jesus has for us this morning. Matthew 18, in our church Bibles, it's page 799. Matthew 18, page 799. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you. We provide those because we believe this is the very word of God and that we want you to be able to hear what God has to say to you, not just simply from me, but by reading it and seeing it for yourself. So if you're willing, take a Bible, turn to page 799, Matthew 18. As you're turning, let me put the story we're about to look at in the context of where it fits in Matthew 18. Last week we talked about the fact that when we gather together as the church, <clears throat> Jesus is present uniquely in our midst. Now the opportunity for Jesus to tell us that he was uniquely present was a discussion about discipline, church discipline. In other words, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, which is where we were last week, is about how you and I should respond when someone sins against us and refuses to acknowledge it. Jesus gives a procedure, which is go and talk to the person. If they won't listen, take two or three other people with you. If they won't listen, then bring it to the church. Now, we used last week to talk about the fact, why church? But we shouldn't miss the fact that Matthew, 15, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is about the issue of when someone does us wrong and refuses to acknowledge it, God says, here is the procedure. As we move to Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, the question has changed. We're no longer thinking about what if someone does you wrong and won't acknowledge it. Now we're talking about what, how should you and I respond if someone wrongs us and is willing to acknowledge it. Which means if you're here this morning and you have experienced abuse or neglect, if you've been betrayed by a close friend, if someone has lied to you, if you've experienced uh, being stabbed in the back, someone doing something, returning your good with evil, if you've gone through something like that and the person is unwilling to acknowledge it, this sermon is not so much for you this morning. You're still in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. But if you're here today, if you're listening online, and perhaps you're living with an alcoholic who is struggling desperately to get out of alcoholism, or you have a parents who've realized that they were not the parents they needed to be and they're trying to make amends, or somebody who's bullied you at school, 
seems to now be remorseful for the way they treated you when you were younger. Or maybe you've gone through an experience where someone has betrayed you, but you have a sense that they're sorry for what they've done. If that's your situation, then this is the passage for us today. How should we respond when someone wrongs us and is willing to acknowledge it? Well, this is the issue that kicks off the discussion. So look with me at verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, this is a bit of a strange kind of conversation here. Peter says, what about seven times to forgive somebody? Like if they come and sin against me and then I forgive them and then they sin against me again and I forgive them. And then how many times I got to do that? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. And at first glance, you might get the sense that are we supposed to keep a list? They're like, okay, well, he's asked me for forgiveness for this sin. I check off one, two. And once we get to seven, we're done. Like, are we supposed to be keeping track of these things? That doesn't feel right. No, there's something else that's going on here in this passage. And I will admit to you, I'm not exactly sure why Peter asks his question the way he does. He says, do we have to forgive somebody seven times? It might be because at the time of Jesus, there was sort of like this teaching out there that you should only forgive somebody for the same thing three times. That if someone lies to you and then comes and apologizes, you should forgive them. If they do it again, you should forgive them. If they do it a third time, you should forgive them. But after that, you shouldn't forgive them anymore. So it's possible that Peter, knowing that at least some people were teaching three times, maybe he comes and says, yeah, but we're Jesus followers and Jesus is extra kind. So let's take the three and make it seven. It's like Peter's like doubled it and added one. And so maybe he comes to Jesus and is like, okay, maybe we should do this seven times. Now, I don't know exactly why he asks it this way, but I'm relatively confident I know why Jesus responds with 77. And that's because he is making an allusion to a Bible story also from the book of Genesis. Not the story of Joseph, one much earlier than that. A story that happens in Genesis chapter 4 with a man named Lamech. Lamech is, sadly, the first polygamist in history. He also appears to be the inventor of weapons. And in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech says this to his two wives. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Do you hear our numbers? Seven and 77. What Lamech is saying in this is that he comes to his two wives and he says, hey, Cain, now that's a reference to even earlier in Genesis 4. Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. And he kills his brother Abel because according to Lamech, Abel has wronged Cain. And so Cain takes revenge on Abel for making him feel bad about his sacrifice. And he takes revenge and Lamech says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then I'm going to be avenged 77 times. In other words, 
someone has wounded Lamech. We don't know exactly what happened. And he has sought revenge. But what he's saying is, is look, if I put this in modern terminology, if what Cain did to Abel to get revenge was a one on a scale of one to 10, what I did is a 10 on a scale of one to 10. That's the seven and the 77. Lamech is saying, yes, Cain, he sought revenge, but I'm gonna go way above and beyond what Cain did. Lamech is like the Edmond Dantes of the Old Testament. Whatever he did, he's plotted revenge, and he's taken that. This is what Jesus is alluding to in Matthew 18. Peter is effectively asking him, do we have to forgive seven times? And Jesus says, if you forgiving somebody seven times is a one on a scale of one to ten, what Jesus is saying, what I'm looking for is the ten. That just like Cain was a one and Lamech was a ten when it came to revenge, forgiving somebody seven times is a one, and I'm looking for the ten response when it comes to mercy and forgiveness. The question is, well, what does a ten look like when it comes to mercy and forgiveness? Well, Jesus tells us a story. Now, this is a made-up story, meaning it's a parable. And he's written this story, Jesus has, because he wants to control all of the details of exactly how this is going to be told. And so let's look at the story Jesus tells to try to illustrate what does forgiveness as a 10 look like? What does a 77 kind of forgiveness look like? Verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now before we look at the point Jesus wants us to take away from this, which is in verse 35, let me make two observations from our story of noteworthy things that we should pay attention to. The first has to do with the incredible mercy of the king. Now this is told in the language of financial debts. And this servant who works for a king 
has racked up debt. And again, remember, Jesus is making this story up. It's a parable to teach a point. But I want you to notice the point Jesus is making. He says the man owes 10,000 bags of gold. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's a lot. Let me tell you how much that actually is. The word that's translated bags of gold is actually a Greek coin or a Greek monetary unit, which is a talent. A talent was equivalent to 20 years of day wages. So if you took the amount of money you make in a day and then did 20 years of that, that added up, and that added up to a talent. So it's a big monetary unit. Jesus says this man owes 10,000 talents. So if you do the math, which I've done for us, that's 73 million days wages. So think about what you earn in a day. You got to do 73 million of those. If you want it in years, it's 280,000 years of work. Now, I did the math, but didn't put it up there. If you work weekends, it's only 200,000 years. So you could knock some time off if you're willing to work Saturday and Sunday. This is an enormous amount of money. Think about how much money you make in a year and think about doing that for 280,000 years. I know some of you in this room are counting the years towards retirement. Imagine adding 280,000 to that number. That would be depressing. This is the magnitude, and it gets better or worse, however you want to think about this. This is the low end of what Jesus might be saying. That's the very bare minimum of what he's saying. At least 280,000 years of work. It's possible he actually has a bigger number in mind. And the reason we think that is a talent is the very largest monetary unit that Jesus could refer to. And the number 10,000 is the very largest number that there's a Greek word for at the time of Jesus. So if we translated that in today, if we tried to get the biggest word we have, what we're really talking about is a debt that's not billions or trillions or quadrillions. We're talking about a debt best described with the word centillions. That's kind of the biggest word we have in English. Jesus is effectively saying this man has an infinite debt. At the very minimum, he would have to work 280,000 years to pay that off. At the maximum, it's a larger number than any human can ever comprehend. Now I think, how many Amazon purchases do you have to make <laughs> to rack up that kind of debt? But it's a made-up story. Jesus is trying to make the point, look at how much he was forgiven. Now, just even, we're still talking about how merciful the king is. Did the servant even ask for the debt to be forgiven? What did he ask for? Patience. Patience and I'll pay back everything. On what universe was this guy ever going to pay that money back? The king was not asked to forgive the debt. He simply was asked for mercy and patience. And the king goes out of his way, not to give him more time. He just simply says, I forgive it all. 
You don't owe me anything. Some of us here know what college debt is like. Some of us here know what it's like to be uh, in debt or have. To hear those words, it's all gone. Can you imagine if this was the amount hanging over your head? And the king says to you, I forget it, it's gone. So the first thing to note is just how merciful this king is being. The second thing to notice from the story is how totally ungrateful the unmerciful servant is being. We see him, he leaves the, he's just had all his debt forgiven. I don't know if he's doing the Dave Ramsey like primal scream thing where all your debt is gone, but he's just had this great news given to him. And what does he do? Again, it's a made up story, but Jesus is trying to make the point here. He goes out from the king's presence, finds somebody who owes him some silver, which correlates to about four months' worth of wages. He finds the guy, he grabs him by the neck and starts choking him. I mean, the unmerciful servant owed the king a lot more money than this, and the king didn't treat him like that. The king just had a conversation with him. But here is this man berating this person. And then as you can only do in a story that Jesus is telling. What does the man he's choking do? He says basically the exact same words back to the unmerciful servant that the unmerciful servant said to the king. This was supposed to be a clue. How hard-hearted do you have to be to hear the very words you just used a few minutes or a few hours earlier and not recognize this is my chance to do for him what was done for me. That is super hard-hearted. And then there's a third way in which this guy's just totally ungrateful. And I'd never noticed that until studying this passage for this sermon. The unmerciful servant takes the person who owes him four months wages and does what with him when he won't pay? Throws him in prison. But who is this other guy a servant of? The king. Meaning he's got a job that the king gives him to do. Is he able to do that job in prison? No, which means the unmerciful servant is actually harming the king who was so kind to him. He's taken one of his workers and put him into prison where he can't do work anymore. And the point you're supposed to come away from this story is, on one hand, man, the king is unbelievably merciful. And on the other hand, how incredibly ungrateful and unmerciful is this servant? Well, Jesus tells us the king is not very pleased when he hears about what the unmerciful servant has done. And so Jesus gives us the point in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let me give you three principles from what Jesus is saying here that we're supposed to apply to our lives today. First, our heavenly father treats us better than the king in the story treated his servant. Remember, it's a parable. The king in the story is not God. The king in the story represents God. 
He's a character that's meant to make us think about God. But Jesus is not trying to give us a sort of systematic theology about all of the characteristics of who God is. He's telling a story, and in the story, the king simply represents God. And what I want us to understand is the king in the story, as merciful as he is, God is even more merciful with us. And what I mean by that is the king in the story forgives the debt, but he doesn't forget about it. Because after the unmerciful servant is unmerciful, what does the king do? He reapplies the debt to the unmerciful servant and then throws him into prison. Here's the crazy thing. If you, by faith, have accepted God's forgiveness in Jesus, your heavenly Father will never do that to you. God goes above and beyond even what the king in this story does. This king forgives. Our God forgives and forgets. Our sins can never be reapplied to our account. They're never hanging out there waiting for us. Which brings us to this point. If in this story the king is upset, how do you think our God is going to feel when he's been even more merciful to us if we choose not to be merciful to others? That's the first principle. Second, we are being asked this morning to forgive real sins done against us. Remember, this is a made-up story. Jesus is controlling all of the details of the story. On the one hand, he chooses an infinitely large number that the unmerciful servant owes to the king. He's made that up. Either 73 million days wages or centillions of dollars. But notice on the other side... When the unmerciful servant goes to the second servant, it's not an infinitesimally small number. He could have said, and this other guy only owed him a penny or some tiny amount. No, Jesus says the other guy owes him four months wages. That's a real debt. That's a normal number. It would be perfectly acceptable or understandable to go, hey, there's a guy that owes me four months salary. And here's Jesus' point. He's not glossing over the fact that we have been genuinely hurt by others. That when we mention abuse, when we talk about neglect, we talk about betrayal, we talk about people lying, we talk about people paying back our good with evil, we talk about the insults, the persecutions, the things that we've gone through. These are real things that have been done to us. They're painful. They're hard. The point of this parable is not just forget about them. The racism that you might have gone through, the sort of financial uh, persecutions you might have experienced, the way you've been cheated, those things that you've experienced, those are real debts that have been racked up against you and against me. And Jesus is asking us to forgive those. He's not pretending that they didn't hurt. He's not pretending that there's not a debt that's owed. It's a real debt. Now you say, well, but is there no limit to mercy? Like, are we just supposed to just keep forgiving and forgive? I mean, that's, how, that's why Peter's asking this question in the beginning. 
If you've got somebody that works for you and they show up late to work, as long as they say they're sorry, should you just keep forgiving them over and over again? Are there never any consequences? If you're living with somebody who's struggling with alcohol and they keep bringing chaos and destruction in your life, but they are trying and they're asking forgiveness, should this just go on? Should you just allow this to keep going? If someone continues to lie against you, if they, as long as they say they're sorry over and over again, is that all right? Now, there is something about what does true repentance look like. 2 Corinthians 7 says, just because somebody says they're sorry, that doesn't mean we've got true repentance. But having said that, let me just say that in our story, there is a limit to mercy. The king runs out of mercy for the unmerciful servant. He says, okay, enough's enough. If you're going to act like this, you're going to go to jail. So here's the point for us. The mercy we show to others is not infinite. It is exhaustible. But keep this in mind. What angered the king most was not the 280,000 years of debt where the king ran out of mercy for the unmerciful servant was when the servant refused to be merciful to somebody else. And so before we leave this parable, thinking like Peter, like give me a number, how many times, how many times I gotta forgive that employee? How many times I gotta forgive that alcoholic spouse? How many times I gotta forgive that person who's lied against me? Jesus is telling this story. Whatever you might come up with for a number of times, that's a one on a scale of one to 10. And what Jesus is looking for is a 10. Third point. God is merciful and gracious. This is another way in which our heavenly father is better than the king in the story. The king in the story is merciful, meaning he does not give the man what his sins deserve. He cancels his debt. That's mercy. Mercy is, by definition, not getting the punishment we deserve. What the king in the story is not is what we would call gracious. The difference between grace and mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is being given blessings that you didn't earn. What we don't see happening in this story is, is the king doesn't adopt the unmerciful servant into his family. The king doesn't give him a position of honor. The king doesn't ask him to serve. But that is how God treats us. God is not only merciful to us, he is also incredibly gracious. He not only forgives our sins when we accept Jesus as Lord, he gives us spiritual gifts, he gives us his Holy Spirit, he pours out his blessings on us, he adopts us into his family, he makes us part of what he's doing, he gives us eternal life. God is not only merciful, he is gracious. Which leads to the sort of final point for us today. If you take Cain and whatever he did, his revenge was, his revenge was like a one. Lamex was like a 10. The Count of Monte Cristo, if you read that story, that's like a 10 on the revenge scale. When you come over to the forgiveness and mercy scale, Peter's asking, well, what about if I did this seven times? Well, yeah, that would be a one on a scale of one to 10. And then the 10 on that scale, well, that's like Joseph. 
Joseph did all this stuff to go out of his way to forgive and be gracious and kind to his brothers. That's a 10 on that scale. But when we think about what God did for us, that's not a 7 or a 77. That's a 73 million on that scale. And what I mean is this. We're in the Christmas season. And at Christmas, we are acknowledging that despite the fact that we have totally messed up our lives, the lives of those around us, and this world, that through our selfish actions, through our cravings and our desires, through our insecurities, through our bitterness, through our pride, through our lack of mercy, through all of the choices that we have made, we have made a complete train wreck of our lives and this world. But God decided not to give us what we deserve. You know what we deserve? I mean, we can talk about hell. There's a very real place. You know, we, we deserve to live in the mess we've made. God is in every right to say, okay, fine. If that's the way you want to live, go ahead and live that way. He did not give us what we deserve. Instead, what he's chosen to do is give us something infinitely better than we could have ever hoped for or imagined. That 73 million days wages doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what God did for us. That at Christmas, God himself in the person of Jesus chose to become human. The powerful thing about the Count of Monte Cristo is he's always in disguise doing all this revenge stuff. The powerful thing about the Joseph story is he disguises himself to be merciful. This is kind of what Jesus did. This is God come veiled in the flesh. He came sort of in disguise, if you will, to bless us with infinite blessings. We who were his enemies, we who've chosen to rebel against him. We've made idols in our lives. We've not honored parents. We didn't do any Sabbath rest. We lied. We stole. We committed sexual immorality. We coveted. We did all of these things. And you know what God's response was? I'm going to send them my most precious relationship. My one and only son. That whichever ones of them, you and me, anybody, who chooses to accept Jesus will have whatever mountains of debt we have accrued totally forgiven and forgotten and will receive from God life, abundant life, eternal life, life with God, life full of love and joy and peace and hope, life. And so this morning, for those of you who are Christians, you've already heard your points. God's been merciful to us. We need to go be merciful to other people. If you're here, you're listening, you hear this recorded, and you're not yet a Christian, here's the point. You've racked up some debt. We all have. I have, and you have. Stuff that you've done that you shouldn't have done. Selfishness that you've engaged in. Harmful behavior. Bullying. Cheating. Stealing. Neglecting doing good. Whatever it might be. And you are carrying that debt around with you.
If you've ever had monetary debt, you know what that feels like. You know what it feels like to always know I owe something. See, the problem for this poor guy in the story is the king's like, okay, well, we could sell you and your wife and your kids to pay off the debt. You know how much that is? That's probably at best a year's wages. Great. 279,999 left to go. The point is, is even if he tried to go out and be merciful, that doesn't pay the debt. Please hear what Jesus is saying to you this morning. I want you to choose to try to be good. I want you not to be selfish. But that's not going to make up for the damage that we've done in the past. Paying your bills now doesn't pay the debt that's accrued. But the good news is, is that God is offering to you this morning to forgive it all. How? Well, it's Christmas. At Christmas, we get gifts. And when someone hands you a gift, you got a couple of choices. You can look at the gift and say, I don't deserve this gift, and you can not take it. You can look at the gift and go, well, I kind of wanted something else and try to return it. Or you can simply accept the gift and say thank you. The gift at Christmas is Jesus. He is God's gift to us. And if you're tired of carrying around that debt, if you're tired of all of the destruction and the chaos that sin brings, if you're ready, he wants to give you a gift. And all you have to do is right now in your heart, simply say, okay, Lord, I accept. Thank you. Let's pray together. God, I pray that all those within the sounds of these words would hear the good news that Jesus is the very gift from you to us. I pray that in our pride we would humble ourselves and not try to say, well, I'll get my life together first before I, I can accept this gift, before I'm worthy of this gift. Lord, we have racked up more debt than we will ever be able to pay. I pray this morning we would accept in Jesus the full forgiveness that you have offered. Blessed be your name, Lord, who is like you. We will praise you forever and ever. Amen.